Welcome to the Agile Book Club. You are your hosts, Justina and Paul. So can I can I tell you my my chess clock story? Because I'm I'm mm-hmm. amused and kind of proud of this. So, Justina, you know that I got this chess clock. I, I got found an antique chess clock on Allegro, which is a wonderful, wonderful company and a wonderful, wonderful service, which is about to be hugely stressed by the introduction of Amazon into Poland. And so our Polish listeners out there support Allegro. I mean, Amazon's incredibly useful, but Allegro is homegrown. It's our service. So let's not let it, be, let, not let it die. Because this is not a thing that would happen on Amazon. I went on, on Allegro looking for chess clocks, and I found this antique chess clock. I wanted something that had that kind of thunk, you know? I, I didn't want little buttons and a digital display and a plastic housing mm-hmm. and such. I wanted something that would have that thunk like in the Queen's Gambit. You know, you hit the button, it goes thunk, and you hear the mechanism inside go clunk, and the, the, the clock shifts over to the other player. And I got it uh, reasonably cheap because the glass on it was broken, so I got it for 50 bucks. And I thought, you know, I can go and cut a piece of clear acrylic to fit. And uh, and anyway, that was my plan. I was going to cut a piece of clear acrylic to fit. But then just, uh, you you liked it and when we were playing with it. And uh, I thought, well, let me see if I can find another chess clock and I'll get it for Justina. And I didn't find another chess clock. I found somebody selling three chess clocks exactly identical to mine all broken. And I thought, hmm, with three, with four chess clocks, if, here, here's the way I explained it to my son. So a chess clock has two clock mechanisms in it, and it's like a pair of socks. This is one of the reasons why I buy all the same kind of socks these days, is because if you've got all different socks, or like I used to do, where I would never wear the same pair of, same socks on both feet, if you have unique pairs of socks and you get a hole in one of them, inevitably one of them gets a hole before the other one gets a hole, right? So you're throwing away half of your perfectly good socks. Well, it's the same thing with chess clocks. They each have two completely independent clock mechanisms in them. And I figured in each of these, one of the mechanisms will break before the other one does, and then the chess clock is broken, right? So if I've got, if this guy's selling three broken chess clocks then chances are there's actually three working clocks and three broken clocks in there, and I can mix and match and swap them up. And because nobody likes to buy broken things on auction sites, I bought all three broken chess clocks for another 50 bucks, almost exactly what I paid for my first one. So I now have four broken chess clocks, one that works perfectly with broken glass, three with perfectly good glass. And as it turns out, of those three, two of them were fine. They just needed a little tinkering, a little oil. One of them was overwound. And so it was actually two perfectly good, 100% fine working antique Soviet era chess clocks. Only one of them was actually broken. And when I took it apart and went inside, I found out that this one of these little pieces, the the, the little spring piece on a spring that goes back and forth that, that regulates the speed of the clock had gotten dislodged from the crystals in which it sat and I couldn't seat it properly by myself and so yesterday I took it to a clock repair shop which for our American friends I don't know if you know this in America people don't fix anything it's one of the things I love about Poland yeah there's 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 like clock repair places everywhere and there's there's um um 
there are, there are places, anything that you need repair. There's shoemakers everywhere. There's, there's people who have actual skills at, at making and fixing things all over the place. They're all old, and this worries me. 20 years from now, there may not be a clock repair person left because I don't know any of them that are older, any younger than 70. So I take it to this guy. I take it to my usual guy because I've got a bunch of antique watches he's fixed. He's out with COVID. And so I go to another guy I've never been to before. And I go into this little shop and he's looking at me warily and my Polish is, is clearly <laughs> foreign. How did you say that? How, what did you say? Can I ask? I'm not going to, I'm not going to speak Polish on the podcast. I'm, I'm not going to speak Polish on the podcast, especially on a topic which is, you know, even, even if you do speak a language with some degree of comfort, if you've never spoken about clocks and clock parts before, you're still going to sound terrible in it, right? I bet you don't know the name of this little wheel thing inside of it, right? And you're a native Polish speaker. So no, I'm not going there. So I told him I had a problem with a clock and, and he realized I wasn't trying to sell something. And then I whipped out this like 60-year-old uh, Russian clock made by Yantar, which is this was, was this huge clock manufacturer. And his eyes just kind of lit up and he smiled like, okay, yeah, I know exactly what, what's going on here. That's <laughs> something I can do. Because this is the cool thing about it. I've always gone to these watch repair people to repair antique watches because I've got a collection of, of old watches. And really? oh yeah, I've got some some really lovely old old watches. Um, but anyway, I imagine if you spend a lot of time working on watches, I've always thought of clocks as incredibly complex, intricate mechanisms because all of my mechanical clocks were were watches and pocket watches. But when I took apart this chess clock. I realized that a clock only has like five moving parts and it's big. It, it, it was like, it's like the difference between working on a Honda engine and working on a 1965 Ford engine. You know, all the parts were big and obvious and accessible. So it's going to be just easy peasy for him to fix. And when he does, I'm going to have four perfectly good working chess clocks, one of which has broken glass. One of them is for you. Justina. Yes. And the other two I'll sell back onto Allegro for twice what I paid for either one of them. And I will end up making back twice what I spent and still having a chess clock for each of us. And yeah, and still getting me a gift. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, wonderful. Yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that one. Yeah. So that's my story. That, that's my, my big success for the week. That and finishing this book. Because it was one of the slower going books. I should say it was one of the denser books in terms of the, just the, the size of the book and the volume of the material in there. It doesn't look that big, but there's a lot more text in this book than almost any of the books except maybe the Kanban Maturity Model book that we've read. It, it took me a good eight to ten hours to finish it. I was doing it at, at like two hours a day. And I have such a snarky comment. That I'm hesitating since I've, since my walk this uh, this this noon if I want to share it or not. <laughs> but my snarky comment was that this book was definitely not wrote to read sooner, safer, happier, faster, <laughs> and all of that. It was not for not. not, not okay, I'm, I'm not sure that's entirely fair, but we can get into why. I just said it was a snar It was a very snarky comment, but I couldn't hesitate. <laughs> I understand. 
I absolutely understand. Let's let's tell our, our listeners those of because there'll be some who are just tuning in for the first time. A lot of our, our repeat listeners know what we've been reading because we announced it two weeks ago and four weeks ago, and so you know what's coming. And of course, it's probably right there in the show title. But uh, for this episode, we read a book called "Sooner, Safer, Happier." By the main author is uh, Jonathan Smart, although there were chapters contributed by three other co-authors, um, Zolt Berend, Miles Ogilvy, and Simon Roher, and and it's it's really a book about enterprise agile. My first impression, I, I want to say, I want to start with something really good. I picked up this book, and I was awed by the quality of the manufacture. We handle so many books. It's it's a cloth bound book, but it's it's really tightly bound with with a with a really good um, um, binding. The paper is so satisfying, and I instantly fell in love with the font. It doesn't say who did the typography, but this book is just deliciously and delightfully made, and and a pleasure to hold and flip through. And. I have like one more comment. My first impression was that I really loved the cover because you can remove the cover and then you get like a list of uh, outcomes and suggested chapters that you can follow if you want to get this outcome. I didn't follow that path. I forgot about Mm. it, to to be honest. I was excited when I saw the book, when I saw that. But then after I started reading like, you know, a week ago, I completely forgot about it. But just the idea... For that, I, I found it uh, clever and uh, and useful. So yeah, I, the inside of the dust cover shows different reading paths that you can take through the book in order to find, in order to, to satisfy different needs. And one of the things that that communicated to me was the amount of care that went into the production of the book. So ev- all of the first experiences led me to think I was getting into a really special experience and I was going to really enjoy this. I am... Um, I got to say, though, after we've read as many books as we have in this domain, I have, it might not be fair to say, I said this on, on, on LinkedIn and regretted it almost immediately because it's a judgment and probably not a fair, it might not be a fair judgment. And that is that when the introduction of the book, in the introduction of the book, the author says, you can read this book end to end, but you can also just dip in and read the parts you want, that that is a a red flag, a sign of poor editing. And that judgment may not be fair. It may not be poor editing. I don't think it's actually sloppy editing because indeed it's true. You can open this book up and read any section and you won't be lacking for context. So it literally does read, even even within a chapter, you can just read only the anti-patterns to look for an anti-pattern that matches what you're seeing. Or you could just read the part of the chapter which is about principles, or you can just read a part of the chapter which is about about positive patterns. And you won't even need the whole chapter in order to give you context. But the price of that is a infuriating amount of redundancy. Mm-hmm. Like if this book was actually written to be read end to end, it would be half this size because there was so much redundancy. Just just for example, each one of the chapters opens with, with a story, a true story, familiar stories, in fact, that tie into the theme of the chapter. And then it's used throughout the chapter, which is really nice. But then there's a, a section on principle, 
where it talks about the, 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 the principles that the chapter is going to go into, and then the anti-patterns. And then in the introduction to the section that talks about the patterns, it reiterates all of the principles as though you hadn't just read them all 15 minutes ago, except written differently in different words. So there's that level of redundancy in the book. And I was, hmm, I don't regret having read the book. I, I think it was great. But I found that to be sitting down and, and actually reading the book end to end in four days was exhausting because of that. And, and I was thinking about what could one do about that? Because uh, when I made that comment, not about this book, but about books in general on on LinkedIn, one of our friends replied that that's kind of our own doing because that's the way readers in our industry consume their books. It never occurred to me to buy a book in my domain and just read three chapters out of it, but it may very well be. But how could you satisfy people who just want to dip in and find something about their particular problem and get out? And also people who want to read end to end. And one of the ideas that occurred to me walking to work this morning is that if all of the redundant material that was put in place just to provide context for a person just reading that segment was in a slightly different font or an 80% gray instead of 100% black ink, I could have just skimmed whole huge sections of this book without missing anything because I've already gotten that material earlier. Now that would make, make it even more difficult to write and edit, but I would have appreciated some attempt on the part of the editor to make it a comfortable read end to end. But we're getting into all this, this these, these nitty-gritty details, and we haven't even done the elevator pitches yet. Justina, would you share your elevator pitch for the book? Yes, yes, yes. I, I can share the elevator pitch. Uh, so basically, um, the reason why we read this month uh, Sooner, Safer, Happier was uh, one of our listeners who suggested that in, in our Slack channel. And I was very excited to actually start reading that book because I'm just about to start adventure with more product ownership role and all of those responsibilities. And I was thinking, wow, that will be amazing read. And I think that it's a great book for digital leaders, for people maybe who are not so into all of the agile frameworks who are not trainers who are not consultants because as you said there will be a lot of repetition of things that you already know and it will be throughout the whole book that it might give you a little bit the experience that you are tired and it takes so long to get to the need that you came for so i would actually suggest this book for digital leaders who would like to start their agile transformation and learn that putting all of the frameworks, all of the ceremonies, all of the tools in place, it won't guarantee them success. They have to start looking from the perspective of outcomes. Or maybe I would suggest this book also for people who are into the agile transformation and they are a little bit uh, disappointed because it doesn't bring them the outcomes of what they were hoping for. So I would suggest them to go through some chapters and have a look of what might be the possible situation, what might be the possible anti-pattern that they are into. But I think that, as Paul, you already mentioned, for people who are already in the field for the longer time to read it from the front page to, to the end, it might be a little bit tiring experience. But I don't think that it devaluates the value of the book. I think that there's a lot of learning and there's a lot of very interesting stories. 
And I'm sure that after reading this book, I'm not going to be so uh, easy on when I'm in Boeing 737 <laughs> due to some <laughs> stories. Or, for example, that I will look a little bit differently at um, General Motors Company, or I would have a little bit different stories about Nokia. So it was very interesting that the book touched so many different industries and revealed so many topic stories that I was never familiar with. So that was very, very interesting uh, for me. But I just wanted to put, you know, as a word of warning uh, for some people from the agile industry that they might find the frustration by reading the whole book, but I'm sure that they will find value that if they are capable of, they will use them very well and will help them in their day-to-day work. You know, I'm going to be able to build on that. Not to say I don't don't agree with you, but what you just said and, because it was very similar to what, what I thought, which is halfway through the book, I was getting very frustrated. I hadn't learned a single thing or come across a single new idea. And it wasn't until later in the book that it dawned on me that I'm not the intended audience of this book. This book is not written for enterprise agile coaches. If you're an enterprise agile coach and you don't know 80 or 90% of the material in this book already, then you probably should reconsider your job title. Because I know there's a lot of people with enterprise <laughs> agile coach in their job title who that's, that, yeah, it's, there's an explosion of them on LinkedIn. All of a sudden, all of those people who used to be scrum masters are all now enterprise agile coaches. But um, if you're an enterprise agile coach, you already know this stuff. There might be some interesting lessons in it for you, and there might be creative ways of, of telling stories that you've got your own ways of telling and, and communicating ideas. The overall idea is certainly worth it. But I think what what the authors have done here is something that really badly, badly needed to be done. They have written a book about enterprise agility that's not for IT people. Can you imagine the impact that this book would make in a large organization if it were read by line managers and above in every discipline except IT? Mm. All of the people who consume the IT services of that organization, but don't really understand what that agile transformation was all about and and are frustrated that all it means is that they had to write user stories, but they're still waiting just as long as they ever ever waited before. It's it's really a great insight into why we're doing agile and why a company cannot succeed if it only applies agility to its IT department. And even worse, if it only applies agility to the teams within the IT department, which is what so often happens. Because a company can't be agile if their director of human resources isn't agile. A company can't be agile if their head of marketing isn't agile. A company can't be agile if their head of customer service isn't agile. And and so I think that's the real value. Now, agile coaches can read this, but if you don't have a lot of time, I think an agile coach can skip the entire first half of the book. If you know about, if you have a moderate level of understanding of Kinevin, Kanban, what else? Yeah, if you have a moderate level of Kinevin and Kanban, you can skip the first four chapters of the book and you will miss almost nothing at all. And 
If you also know about flight levels, this book was obviously heavily influenced and inspired by flight levels, even though Klaus Leopold and the word flight levels are never mentioned anywhere in the book. The idea of, of, of flight levels is one of the cornerstones of the entire book, the whole idea that, that uh, you have to create end-to-end flow of value and that multiple entities and departments and, and individuals inside of an organization are going to have to collaborate in order to make that happen. But but I, I guess we'll get into it in the takeaways because uh, – but maybe just, just, just as part of the elevator pitch, I'd like to point out that there are three chapters in this book which do some do a specific thing better than I've seen it done elsewhere. I think if you're interested in risk and safety, the chapter on risk and safety is one of the most interesting and, and best written summations of how to how and why to create a culture of safety, even in an IT organization or especially specifically for an IT organization. I think the chapter on quality is one of the best concise summaries of the why and how of DevOps that I've seen. And I think the chapter on creating a learning organization, that chapter alone is actually probably more actionable than Peter Senge's entire book. <laughs> so people always say, if you want to create a learning organization, you, you can base it on the fifth discipline because that's where the whole idea comes from. I've never found the fifth discipline to be that action-oriented. It doesn't really tell managers how to work. It's It's got too much systems thinking woven into it. And kind of as the authors in the in the Kinevin book pointed out, systems thinking is really t- tightly rooted into that complicated domain, whereas most of the work that we do is in the complex domain. And I think that's where the disconnect takes place. So I've got a new go-to recommendation for people who are interested in practically how to create a learning organization it's more actionable, it's more inspiring, and it's much more concise. So those three chapters alone are worth it for the book if you're interested in any of those okay, topics. Okay, okay. That, that was actually a very uh, interesting uh, opinion that you have, Paul, because I would also point, I, I don't know, I think maybe for the reasons that you said that everyone in the field always direct people to the fifth discipline, I would be doing the same, but now you just opened some more horizons for my thinking, even though that I read the same book. It's always so good to to talk to you. So maybe, Paul, I will just jump into the first takeaway because I think our elevator pitches took us from Krakow to almost uh, Rzeszów. <laughs> so it's uh, it's time to tell a little bit more uh, what was worth uh, reading in this book. And actually, one of my um, first learning was from the beginning of the book. And that was the question, what are you optimizing for? And I had the feeling uh, and a lot of like memories when I was uh, working with uh, marketing, doing some campaigns and, you know, all of those, those things. And it was so easy to do everything at the same time because you had like so many great ideas. But once you had to answer yourself the question, what are you optimizing for? Everything started being a little bit more difficult, uh, even though that it's supposed to be easier because it connects the creates the focus for you it makes you easier to get some decisions because you know what is your priority what are you optimizing for but sometimes it's still it's still you know hard and i was thinking that whenever we are 
starting the agile transformation or we are in the agile transformation, the question should be asked multiple times, not only at the beginning, uh, not only at the end, but also like in, in, in the middle, what is actually the value that we want to get out of it? Is it that we want to go sooner, which means that we want to work on our lead time, throughput or flow efficiency? Is it the safer uh, area that we are aiming aiming for, so the, the quality that we are uh, having? Or maybe is it the happiness of uh, employees, of our customers, of our colleagues? Or maybe is it uh, something else? that we are optimizing for. And actually, the answer for that question kind of um, shapes the actions that are taken and that are planned to be taken. And I think that it's, it's, it's very important and like it's like a first step in order to uh, create focus. And also, I, I was thinking that right now, if I will start a, a new job, a new assignment, a new gig, that would be like one of my first questions, like really to ask. So what do you want me to optimize? <laughs> Where should I put focus? And it's like so simple. It's just like one question, but I found it extremely powerful. But what, what I also liked is the way that, not unlike Kent Beck did when he first iterated the, the practices of XP, is I think the authors do a really good job of illustrating and emphasizing the interplay between these different sets of objectives. So if you optimize only for value, you are very likely to disappoint your users and hurt your employees. If you optimize only for happiness, you're not necessarily going to be making your shareholders happy. The The interplay between creating value sooner, safer, and happier is such that you really have to balance those metrics and make sure that you're not optimizing too much for one at the expense of another. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, actually, I, I also benefit out of these trade-offs, as, as you described, because uh, so often we are so optimistic that we can optimize like everything at the same time. And I think like it's a pretty romantic scenario that it's not true that it's like or very hard to uh, achieve and I, 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 re- I really like the examples that the author gave there I think that they were very useful to make decisions as well that was something that, that they emphasized several times and I, I find it very very healthy and I, I try to do it myself as much as I can in social media and in my writing as well is to discourage people from looking for quick fixes so I think it's very, very healthy when authors come right out and say, changing the way a corporation, especially a, a large traditional corporation, works in a meaningful way is going to take three to five years. Even just looking with, with the work that I do, which is usually just at the department level, changing the way a department thinks is at least a two-year proposition. I can go in and create... Kanban or Scrum teams throughout the entire department in six weeks who are obeying the rules. But if you want teams that are making decisions and collaborating with each other based on lean and agile principles in order to advance the needs of the organization, that's going to take at least two years. And it's, it's really healthy to, to hear that because I think that's one of the reasons why so many 
that's only one of the reasons why agile transformations fail, but it's one of the main reasons why change initiatives in general fail, fail is that they're based on timelines that are just too short for the change that they actually want to see happen. And I think there's one point to which they, they point out in here that it takes three to five years to make any kind of a meaningful change in an organization and only months to destroy it, <laughs> to revert back to the old ways of, of working. Yeah. So, Paul, what else was it in this book for you? I'm trying to think of how to structure my response because because it's all over the place. There were a lot of takeaways from this book. And again, half I was more than halfway through the book before I realized it wasn't for me. And so I have to try to look at it from the point of view of a CEO, a CTO, a CFO, a COO, a director of marketing, what have you. These, these people for whom all of this is going to be relatively new. And so I, I think since we're talking about change initiatives in general, I, I think I'll start with a high level of that. And that is I really like this idea of starting slow, which fits in really well with uh, the way we teach Kanban as well. Kanban is taught as, as an evolutionary approach to change. And the author uses the Kubler-Ross curve, which I've never seen applied here. It's, it's uh, taking, taking the research into the way people deal with grief and applying it to the way people deal with change. But I don't see that as being inconsistent with the way that we talk about the J-curve effect, with the way that anytime you implement a change, you're going to have a period of suboptimal results as people adapt to the new change. And if the change is pos positive, only then later do you start seeing the, the benefits. And so the value in doing multiple small changes is that they're easier to revert and that that dip in whatever it is that you're trying to improve, that dip in comfort or that dip in productivity or that dip in revenues or that dip in happiness or whatever it is, becomes much shorter and smaller and easier to revert. So the idea of, of doing it in several small increments was attractive, but I also really liked the way that they applied this kind of crossing the chasm thinking to change, which is that don't impose it on the people who are frightened of it in any organization of thousands or tens of thousands of people, whatever idea it is you want to try out, I guarantee you that there are people in the organization already who are enthusiastic about it. They did it in another job, or they're reading about it in books and blogs, or they heard about it in a, a conference, and they'd really love to try it. And so the idea is, if you start up a kind of community of practice, if you say, hey, everybody who's interested in this thing, let's start getting together for lunch every Wednesday, and then, or whatever. And then you just see who shows up and who shows up consistently and start, start implementing the change with those people. And then when it starts working and, and they're happy and they're enjoying what they're doing and they're achieving objectives, start amplifying that, start, start drawing attention to it, give those people rewards, have them tell their stories, incorporate them into your social media, your internal marketing and such. And then you get the next wave. Then after the innovators have been doing this successfully for a while, the early adopters will start sniffing around and saying, hey, can we try this stuff too? And in that way, slowly grow it until, until the change is proven to be successful and there's enough social proof inside of the organization that even the laggards start looking at it and saying, you know, this doesn't look so frightening to me anymore. Or as they point out, they say, I can see the inevitable is coming and so I'm going to leave the organization. And in, indeed, if, if this is the right move, the right direction for the organization to go, and it's already proven beneficial to the vast majority of the people in the organization, then those laggards at the end, whether they hop on board and contribute or jump ship, either one 
is a good result for the organization. So I, I liked I liked that idea about not forcing the pace of change and not encapsulating it to a certain small group of people, but rather, I, I should say, rather than, than just saying, you, this team, this team is going to be our guinea pigs, say, this is the thing that we want to have happen, who's interested in hopping on board, and then slowly scale it from there so that people opt in instead of being forced to. Because one of the things that, um, that he also says is that whenever you try to impose some kind of a change, even if it's a positive change, you are undermining two of the main things that people are looking for from work. And that is, um, what is it? Uh, it's from Daniel Pink's book. You're, you're, you're both undermining their autonomy because you're saying, this is, this is not the way you do things anymore. This is the way you do things and you have no choice. And you're also undermining their sense of mastery. All of those things that made you good at your job, well, you don't have those anymore. Your job is different and you're no longer good at your job. And, and that's, that's always going to face fierce psychological resistance. And actually, he also pointed out something that I never thought before. Uh, he put a lot of effort into explaining agile transformation that starts with capital A and capital T. That actually the capital A tells you how you are going to change <laughs> and that there will be all of those ceremonies, all of those roles and everything. So it's like a agile inquisition even, I would say. And then the T that tells you that you have to change and that everyone has to change because it's a transformation. And the, the whole phrase, it's, it's, it sounds, as, as we all know, like very revolutionary, but I mean that I, I, never, I never thought about it, you know? I never stopped and I never thought, how does it sound and what are the uh, unintended consequences of how it sounds for other people who are inside this agile transformation or who hear for the first time on the town hall meeting that now it will be the time for the agile transformation. And that, that was actually really eye-opening. Very simple, another, like, you know, a quick, quick takeaway. But uh, I think that that's good. that sums up very nice everything that you said. Well, I think this is one of the things that's getting people excited about this book is that it, it's head-on taking on this this agile industry and flat out saying that if you're doing an agile transformation, stop. That's that's probably not an agile transformation is not the path to agile. And I'm going to be interested in seeing the responses over time because there are a lot of very influential people who make all of their money that way. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and and so he's re really flying in the face of of uh, the industry. Although there's one thing that I'd like to point out, and he doesn't say so explicitly anywhere in this book, which kind of irked me, but that is that this book professes to be method agnostic. Nowhere in this book. The, the book says you have to find your own methods. But there, there were three things, I think, that were consistently emphasized and reiterated in all of the positive patterns. And that is that without explicitly saying you should use the Kanban method, all of the positive patterns in this book are just riddled with all six of the Kanban method practices. So he doesn't say you should do the Kanban method, but you should definitely do all of the practices in mm -hmm. the Kanban method. And uh, DevOps as well. You should definitely do DevOps in, in one way or another. And flight levels as well. So 
it, it, while the understanding of flight levels or the articulation of the ideas of flight levels without mentioning flight levels are pretty shallow in this book, those three concepts, Kanban flight levels and DevOps, never find their way on, into the anti-patterns and are constantly reinforced in the patterns. So it's Kanban, it, it, it's, it's mostly, I should say it's, it's a scaling framework agnostic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But very, very friendly to Kanban. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly, Paul. But you know, the, the big takeaway that I actually had from this book, and I didn't expect this to be in this book, was actually the aspect of the psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I would uh, just see the cover of the book, that, and you would tell me that I will find there a lot of information and a lot of anti-patterns, uh, a lot of explanation about psychological safety, I would be like, huh, are you sure? Is the, <laughs> is the book that I can find it? But uh, I, I really liked it that he pointed out it in so many places to show the value that comes out of it. And I think like one of the key for me was the the need for building the environment that is safe for employees to actually learn and to fail. But I'm, I'm not a huge fan of saying that, you know, each of the, um, each of the failure that we are having, it's okay that it happened because sometimes it also creates the, the culture where people are just, you know, I don't say like don't do their job, but they are, um, hmm, oh my God, how to say that? I don't know. You're digging yourself a hole over here. Yeah, I think there's a hole. Okay, okay. I don't want to go that far. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. So, so it sounds like what you're trying to express is is that uh, there there is obviously a difference between psychological safety and failure tolerance, and I think this is this is one of the things that Dave Snowden misunderstood when I was talking about about uh, tolerance for failure. And there's, there's a, a fundamental difference between tolerance for failure and failure tolerance. Failure tolerance is, a, is a, a description of a system that doesn't collapse under failure. And tolerance for failure is a, a behavior. It's, 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 it's a way that people behave when they see failure that is not focused on individual blame, but understanding that that's part of the process. And it sounds like what you're saying is that, that if you focus too much on just having a tolerance um, for failure, as, as my son would say, whoopsie poops, yes. <laughs> that, uh, that's, that's not the same as psychological safety. That's, that's just ambivalence. Exactly, Paul. Exactly. <laughs> and I will, <laughs> I will now hand over to myself, but thank you very much for, for that. That was exactly what I was trying to uh, express. However, if you truly have an organization with psychological safety and you have an individual who interprets that as, as ambivalence, then the other people around that person will feel confident and comfortable speaking up and pointing out their misunderstanding, Right. So it's kind of a self-correcting system if, if people are actually – and they, they might talk about what's wrong with our onboarding process that gave this person the impression that running unsafe-to-fail experiments without running them by other people was okay because nobody actually cares about failure rather than what's wrong with this person. So if you actually create an organization, an environment that has psychological safety, those conversations can happen and the system can be improved accordingly. Yes, and, and, and another good one actually from the book was that it's a psychological safety, that it's a 
climate in which people are just feeling comfortable expressing themselves, being themselves and, you know, bringing their own value, bringing their own ideas into table. Because if you don't have this safety in the organization, you can, I think, forget about inclusion. You can forget about some introverts or some other people who are just not feeling comfortable with sharing because they feel that they will be, you know, all the time charged or no one will listen really to them. So you really cut off so many possibilities or improving your collective intelligence of actually include everyone into discussion. You just close so, 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 so many doors. And especially if there is also the fear, if uh, there was this... um, I think it was a case case study or just just a story about Boeing 737 and the culture that was in in the organization which was basically saying you cannot say that it's it's wrong you cannot uh, actually put the the red flags yeah the red flags should be like you know hidden away you know you just have to put everything under the carpet and even though that you, the outcome of that and the result of that it's putting so many lives in danger there was just no place of saying that something it's it's wrong and people were terrified of actually reporting the, the problems that they were struggling with and the other striking example for me was the comparison between Toyota manufacture and General Motor manufacture where in Toyota you were it was okay for you to pull the add-on to you know to show that there is some kind of defect in in the line that there is some kind of defect in the part you know just to stop. better than okay it was celebrated it was celebrated yeah it was like thank you so much for drawing us our attention to this thing yes and they they could do that you know at any point uh, where where they felt that it's necessary and everyone could do that you didn't have to be like the master of 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 this line or I don't know the the most experienced person in the room. But actually, in, in General Motors, it was it was forbidden. If you would do that, you would get fired. And the, the, the striking number that comes out of it, it's like in 2006, Toyota became the number one when it comes for the automobile manufacturers, where in 2009, actually, General Motors, they became the biggest bankrupt. And I think that that's the real manifest of uh, what is the benefit of creating the psychological safety? What is the benefit of building the organization when everyone is empowered and it's okay to say, stop, it's, it, it, there is a mistake, yes? There is no blame. Maybe, of course, I was never in the Toyota manufacturer. I can't say that that for, for sure. I don't know how the whole process looks like. But I, I believe that there is no, you know, such a blame shifting, such a looking for for someone who made a mistake, because otherwise it won't it won't happen that people will be, you know, so openly about raising up those points. That's my at least impression. I don't know, Paul, what would you add to it? Well, the thing that jumped out, the statistics that jumped out at me was across multiple industries, the negative correlation between reports of issues and instances of actual safety or quality um, problems. So such, such that it's actually the companies that have the highest number of reports of quality issues or the highest number of reports of safety issues that have the safest and highest quality products because those reports are coming from individuals who feel mm-hmm. safe to speak up and they're being acted upon. So yeah, if uh, the, the, this is, this is a, I think a key takeaway from this book, which is that 
and, and one of the reasons why it comes up in most of the chapters is that you can't get quality without psychological safety because nobody will speak up at, when they see opportunities to improve quality or, or problems with the process that are producing poor quality. You can't get safety without psychological safety. You can't get improvement without psychological safety. You can't get learning without psychological safety. Psychological safety is really the cornerstone of all of the activities that are required in order to create value. Well, dare I say it, better, sooner, safer, happier. Yeah. So Paul, you can go with the next one and then I will jump with mine because I also have still a few to go. Okay, I've, I've, I've got a few that are small and don't require a lot of discussion, but they were really striking for me. One of them is this idea of not funding projects, but funding value streams. I've seen this in so many organizations where, where a project says, this is how much money we need in order to build this thing, and it gets approved, and then you do it. And when you do that, it's very difficult to pivot because if halfway through developing this product, you realize you're developing the wrong product or you need to go in a different direction, the funding is tied to the project, which is bounded. But if you say, we want to accomplish these goals, or even better yet, we want to improve this particular metric as much as we can, and we're willing to spend $50 million to do it over the course of the year, then the team that's, in, that's responsible or the team's responsible for getting the best value out of that $50 million to move that metric can start working on it in, in what seems to them to be the most obvious direction. But if they, as they learn, they can change without having to get budget approval for every single change. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Like what company wouldn't do that? They all say, we want to build this product because we think that if we built this product, which would cost us $50 million, we would increase our market share by 10%. But what if they just said, just admitted that what we want is to increase our market share by 10% and that's worth $50 million to us. Do you really care how you do it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, I also had some aha moments like this one for, for you. Um, and it was actually when he said that you don't manage dependencies, that you break them. Because I was always uh, thinking about, you know, how to manage the dependencies. I, I, I knew that there's there will be always there. So there always has to be a way around them to like manage them, to, you know, to visualize them, to, to make sure that they don't uh, create such a, you know, bottlenecks or delay everything. And, you know, just to be aware of them, of them to map them. But I think that I never came across just this, you know, very simple expression that you have to break them somehow intuitively uh it was always like you know coming to to, to my mind but i think that that was a really very valuable part of part of the book even though that it was a small chunk of the book i think that a lot of uh, people could actually open their eyes how to do it i was a little bit sad that there was not like a lot of examples it was you know just i think like one page but there were still some ideas that you can have like a shared code ownership that you can start with uh, features uh, toggling that there are you know a lot of you know technical ways in order to break those dependencies and to see how it will play out in the longer term exactly that's kind of like um I gave a whole presentation at, at a conference in Warsaw a few years back on exactly this topic. And I gave examples like um, I was once in an organization in which 
teams were building on top of APIs. And whenever they needed a change to an API, the API team had to incorporate that change into their backlog and it added huge delays and dependencies. But all of these, the control over that code was of course in the hands of the subject matter experts, but the code itself was completely shared and accessible. And so one of the things the teams were able to do is rather than requesting a change to the way an API worked, they could actually submit a pull request. And submitting a pull request, it, doing the work them, it themselves might only take a day rather than waiting six weeks to have that delivered. And a pull request is a lot faster to deliver than a feature request. So yeah, there, there's always, there's, there's many different ways. I, I also like the ideas about... A lot of people, when they're thinking about breaking dependencies, they think that the only thing that they can do is to make sure that their cross-functional teams are mm -hmm. fully cross-functional with all the skills that they need. And this was in the last book that we read as well, which was, I, I think the author was talking about, if you see that there's, there are, is a frequent touch point outside the team, maybe that person needs to be in the team. To which I have to think, well, maybe that person can't be in that team because that person needs to be in three teams. There are mm -hmm. touch points for all of them. And so one of the things that they talk about is these, breaking down these silos of information. A person doesn't have to actually physically be on a team and sit with a team in order to be involved in their, their thinking and process. So breaking down these, these, these knowledge and learning silos inside of an organization allows the creation of virtual teams that extend beyond the team and allows, allows these dependencies to become much more fluid, if not completely removed, at least much more fluid and adaptive. So yeah, that, that, was, that was fabulous. I absolutely agree. I enjoyed that. That was one of my takeaways too. <laughs> Happy that this time I could steal yours. So what is the one that I didn't steal? Um, well, this is, this is a basic one, and this is the one that we've, we've all been saying, but it's, it, it can't be said enough, which is there's a lot of discussion about metrics because a big part of this book is about defining metrics around these, these goals, these, these, Defining metrics around goals rather than defining metrics around, you know, the agility. And, but what I thought was a very healthy attitude towards metrics is the goal of using metrics is to improve towards a goal. And because you can't really force the pace of change and you can't compare the, how something functions in one complex domain to how something functions in another complex domain. The two things that you should never do with metrics is chase a fixed target because if you, if you get 90% to it, you've failed. And if you hit it, but you could achieve it, there's no point. And it also drives gamification behavior or comparing metrics across business units or teams. What you should really be looking at, if you have a metric which you want to improve in order to improve your goals, to get closer to your goals, then the thing to look at is how that metric improves in its particular context over time. And you should be concerned if it's not. But not if team A has a higher throughput than, than team B. What's wrong with team B? Or if... If you're not delivering 1,500 features a year, we're not going to be able to compete effectively. Those, those sorts of things are dangerous uses of metrics that lead to suboptimal or even, even damaging behaviors. Mm, yeah. I, I remember, I think that it was um, 
at the ACE conference when uh, Troy was having his presentation about metrics and he mentioned that uh, in one of the organizations that he worked with, that he coached on how to actually generate metrics, uh, their manager, he put them into the canteen. Yeah, up on the wall where everyone could see them? Yes, up on the wall, yeah. That, that people actually started hiding, <laughs> you know, uh, lying on their Jira boards to, in order, you know, to make the lead time uh, looking better, to make the throughput look, looking, you know, more attractive. And then there was the, just the data that was just not true and you couldn't put, you know, trust into it. But it was like lack of the psychological safety uh, as well. Yeah, but I, I'm not, I don't blame the people if uh, the data is just used you know against them like like that that's the yeah that's something that then you have to <laughs> repair and it doesn't take um, and it takes actually a lot of time so so what other takeaways do you have that you just cannot leave out uh, they have to be said yes there is one that i think could be beneficial for our listeners and it was a metaphor about learning how to ski that if you want the whole organization to learn how to ski, you don't push everyone on the ski slope and on the top of the mountain and tell them to get down because the first, it's dangerous. The second of all, most of them will probably you know, fall down and then they will stuck on the mountain and then no one else could pass them. So actually he was using this uh, ski learning metaphor as a metaphor for the agile transformation and something that you said before that you should start with a few people take them maybe you know by hand see how they are doing on the ski uh, what can be done better and once they are skiing you can just invite others and then others and in such a natural way you can learn the whole you can teach the whole organization on how to ski and i i was thinking that this is just you know very simple metaphor that can be used for uh, consultants when they walk into the organization and they, the CTO and CEO, everyone says that we want everyone to learn everything right now. And if you are not comfortable with that because you know what is the problem of that, what might be the possible outcomes, that's a very simple metaphor that you can use. And also he mentioned there the limited capacity to learn and unlearn because if we want to learn something new, and we are in the organization, there has to be also time to unlearn of what we already know. There has to be time that we just have a time to digest the new ways of working and replace the old one. Because it's not that you walk into the place and people cannot walk and you have to learn how how to ski. They know how to walk, but now they just have to learn how to ski. So it's like, you know, adding something more, but sometimes it's again the, the trade-off and the time needed for them to to get something something new on their on their foot, if I can say like that. And I cannot remember right now, but I watched also um Jonathan um smart video when he was using this uh, metaphor and he was uh, ah I know 
And instead of calling people scrum masters, I think he was calling them like ski masters, yeah? That now inside your <laughs> organization, you are going to have ski masters, yeah? And you are going to follow some uh, crazy Swedish uh, company because they have the best ski masters and the best, you know, ski squads. <laughs> so we are going to apply apply all of those models. So I think that we'll put the link to this uh, video in the show notes so uh, some of our listeners might also have some uh, fun with the parody of a ski transformation that uh, that he just made in this uh, video. Okay, yeah, oh, absolutely. That that'll that'll be in the show notes. So we're we're, we're running long, but there's something that I just can't ignore, and I think I can sum it all up in just a minute or two. Okay, but that is that is these chapters that made the biggest impact on me. I could do an entire two-hour podcast just on safety and risk or on creating a learning organization from this book. But I'm going to try to sum it up rather neatly just to illustrate the practical ideas and and the depth that go into these chapters. And that is some of the things I, I thought were really striking is this whole idea that safety, trying to reduce risk inside of, of organizations, especially in complex organizations that work in complex regulated environments, are usually handled by subject matter experts and that, that work in silos and create a lot of redundancy and a lot of excess bureaucracy. And something that I thought was really clever is not only pointing out that there's no amount of bureaucracy that can make something truly robust in a rapidly changing environment. If you have too many rules, if you have too many regulations, if you're using rules and regulations to ensure quality and safety, they will break the first time that they come across something new. And they can also become so stifling that people look for ways around them. I've got, I've got an illustration of this in an organization I was in once. There was a multi-page, huge, I think it was like an 80, 90 point questionnaire that had to be filled out with every single deployment. And we had cheat sheets that just told us what to answer for each of those questions in order to get a deployment approved. We didn't actually have to read the questions, understand what they meant, and give an accurate answer. So very, very dangerous. And uh, but, but as an alternative, he presents this idea of incorporating risk stories into the backlog. So a team of SMEs, a team of, of risk experts who collaborate, work with the various product lines in order to identify the level of risk that has to be applied and the areas of risk of, that, that are, are need to be taken into account and can create risk stories that go into the backlog. And if the risk story is signed off by the appropriate person as having been properly implemented, then you're able to deploy that, that block of functionality without additional sign-offs. So it removes the sign-off procedures. Basically, it's something that I've, all, I've always said, which is that if the development team really understands the risks, you don't need an SME anymore. Because if you can just teach them what they need to look out for and, and, and or, or, or share with them what you're worried about, they can find solutions. And if those solutions are appropriate, they can even be, be shared as good practices in other, other circumstances. And uh, in terms of the, the learning, I think uh, the learning chapter, one of the things that I liked was uh, this whole idea of reducing handoffs because there's so much tacit knowledge lost in handoffs. And so... 
having this this uh this kind of culture of learning where people share openly with each other. And there's a whole bunch of ideas about how to do this and internal conferences and open spaces and lean coffees and rewarding people who, 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 who share and, and rewarding the kind of practices and behaviors you want to see and letting people see that happening, um, creating communities of practices, lunch and learns, things like this. There's a bunch of ideas about creating this kind of environment in which you can identify these points at which Information is either being siloed or tacit knowledge is lost in handoffs, which can be done using tools like value stream mapping to identify those risks. And then ways to identify it, I thought was was absolutely fabulous. But tying all this together is one of the core ideas in this book, which is the idea of having a centralized ways of working office that collaborates with smaller ways of working offices that are nested in the other departments or business units of the organization that facilitates all of these things happening, that identifies who needs help and, and who needs support and who needs coaching and where knowledge silos are building up and, and this sort of thing, and can collaborate with these other ways of working units that sit beneath them, embedded into the, the, the various parts of the organization is the mechanism, it's the support structure that can drive all of these initiatives over time. There's no way I could do that justice in a podcast. You just have to read the book. Mm-hmm. I've just summed up my last four takeaways in one. <laughs> okay, so I was just squeezing like one very, very, very small one, but it's not even like a takeaway. It's something that was like very interesting for me because there was also a story about bank that was going through the agile transformation. And as a side effect of that, in the company that had like 9,000 people, half of them had to like reapply for their job and including their senior leadership and executives. Okay, it was another part of the book and another story that was like very interesting and I was like very triggered into learning more. But again, it was just only on the surface of, of this story, you know, just a huge, you know, picture and one per, one page case study. And I was like, oh, I would like to know how the process looked like. Yeah, I would like to know how many people actually got their job and towards those who didn't, yes? What was actually the culture impact on, on, on the whole process that now you have to reapply for their job, yeah? Would it be like, you know, bigger wall between we don't want the transformation because now you go into our company and you tell me to re- reapply for the job that I'm doing for 20 years? Who are you to tell me to do like things like that? Or was it, you know, a very interesting path for, for everyone, refreshing one? I don't know. I, I think that I will have to just uh, look up on the internet for that. All right. But we are running really, really, really long here, which I think we talked about this in the last podcast. It's pandemic times. My assumption is that all of us could use more social contact and we all have more time on our hands than we used to. And so we can get more disciplined when we go back to regular working, but I don't feel bad about making an hour and 10 minute, an hour and 20 minute episode, even though we usually shoot for 45 minutes to an hour. Is that okay? Listeners, is this okay? If you hate this, if you really want us to be disciplined and make sure that that you can finish the entire episode in one 10K run, go ahead and drop us a note or contact us on LinkedIn or on our Slack channel and let us know. But as it is, I feel pretty comfortable running along but as long know, as we're all having fun. But you know, Paul, on the other hand, uh, there was, I think, Mark Twain who said that he was like apologizing for not making it shorter because he didn't have time. <laughs> and, and of course, if I wanted to, I could... 
I could just really edit this down for punchiness, but by the same token... Or just cut me off. <laughs> you. Okay. If, if I'm trying to look for places to cut, who do you think is the low-hanging fruit here, <laughs> you or me? I, I would say if, if, if you are optimizing for intelligence... <laughs> now, Yustina... <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I, I know. Yeah, if, if we just look at at, uh, at probably the uh, the percentage of you talking and me talking, yeah, it will be you. <laughs> I could show you a picture of it. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's I, I I do all of the editing, and I edit us on two different two different lines in the the editor, and I cut out the bits when I'm not talking, the bits when you're not talking, then I align everything neatly, so I get kind of very visual. It's it's almost like a like a graph. That, that, that shows visually how much is me and how much is you. And I can see it every single time I edit. And I, I think that um, it generally looks like I do two thirds roughly of the talking and you do about one third. We I'm should try to proud. fix that. No, I'm very proud of that. That, it, that actually it's one third, you know? <laughs> At the beginning, I would, would think that it will be like 10%. So I'm, I'm just slowly getting their pull. No. Well, you know, if we had started this podcast when we met, what, seven, eight years ago, that might be the case. But mm, that's true. But now you know how to, how to shut me up when you need to. <laughs> Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's a wonderful skill. So, so let's, let's jump straight into favorite quotations. Um, okay, can, can we, we play the same game that we've played before? Can I go first and try to guess your favorite? Okay, I have three. All right, I, I have seven. I won't say them all. You can share them on social media later. But I'll share the one which I think is your number one. Applications and puppies have something in common. An application is for life, not just for Christmas. <laughs> yes. Like you did this one, I think it was with avocado or something in one of the episodes that was also my favorite quotations and you got it. Yes, Paul, well done. You know me. You know me. <laughs> <laughs> and you only had three, and I just took one of them away from you, so I've got to let you go next. Okay, so I will go with this one. Impediments are not in the path. Impediments are the path. That was my second choice for your favorite. Booyah! <laughs> but now, you, now you've taken one from me. I love that way of thinking. I love that way of thinking. Where there aren't impediments, there's not work that you have to do. The path to improvement is impediment to impediment. That's beautiful. It's like, that is your job. It's not the thing that's keeping you from doing your job. It is your job. That's what you're here for. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a much more positive way of thinking about it. So what would be my number three, Paul? Ooh, I, I'm not sure if I can do this because, because it's, it's, it's stretching it a bit, but... Um, but I will try. I will pick the one of my remaining ones that I think you would also call out. And that is activity should not be mistaken for achievement. Did I, I do it? I, 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 had it out, I had it in the book. I think that I uh, highlighted it, but I didn't have it here because I remember that one too. This reminded me of the, uh, the analogy. Analogy or metaphor? Metaphor, I think, in, in which um, I forget exactly how he said it, but he said something like, um, you set all of your agile hairs loose, and, and before you know it, they've all turned into headless chickens. <laughs> so, so if you're optimizing for agile teams, and agile teams are optimizing for throughput, you could be getting a lot of stuff 
but you're not necessarily achieving your goals. <laughs> so, so just activity doesn't mean like like looking busy. It can mean actually being busy and doing exactly what you're optimized for doing, but it's not in line with the organi- organization's needs. <laughs> That's why I liked that one. Yeah, agreed. And my last one is, uh, is, 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 is. Also, not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. Especially the latter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, you know, uh, sometimes what we tend to see that people just try to measure like everything for like no reason just for the sake of beautiful uh, charts so or, or sometimes they, they, they want to measure something that's like impossible to measure so i think that it's uh, yeah it's uh, just a nice uh, bottom line so can i share something else that i wrote i, I think we might have to change the format a little bit because i've noticed one of the things that, that always happens is that i've got my elevator pitch i have my takeaways i have my favorite quotations but then i have things that don't fit into any of those like comments about the typography and binding and such so the things that i notes that i jot down that i put in my own notes into a category called observations but there's not actually a, a part for that in the format of the podcast. But but this is one that I kind of liked, which is that um, now while there is a ton of detailed material in this book, I don't want to sell it short by saying this, but to some extent, one could say that the book in a nutshell is use the Kanban method across the entire value stream rather than using any scaling framework. Instead, scale Kanban using flight levels, using only outcome-oriented metrics, and don't measure for absolute values, but for change over time. Bake in a DevOps culture with a focus on culture first rather than focusing on tools. That, I guess, plus psychological safety is like the theme of the whole book. I think that Even that though you won't sound... find that actually written any place. Exactly. <laughs> I think, Paul, that would be a, a great uh, selling, <laughs> uh, selling material for the book, you know, the summary that you just made it. The only problem with that is that the Kanban community is still much smaller than the Scrum community. And Kanban at scale is not really a scaling framework to compete with the other scaling frameworks. So the people who are making money off of selling this stuff are combined all sitting in in communities that are all much larger than the Kanban community. So if you if I the Kanban community will love this book. They'll find a lot in it that resonates for them. And hopefully hopefully there aren't a lot of people anymore who are anti Kanban. There, there was a point, and, and in fact, um, one of our colleagues wants to do a conversation on, on his podcast with me just about Scrum versus Kanban, and I'm so tempted. I don't know. I'm so sick of this topic. But now that Scrum has incorporated Kanban as as one of its partner or, or constituent methodologies, and Kanban is kind of baked into so many of the, the various scaling frameworks, to the extent that this book teaches Kanban in a way that is perfectly consistent with the way that LKU teaches Kanban without even saying anywhere in the book that it's doing Kanban. So many of the practices are just assumed to be a no-brainer that I would hope at this point nobody would say, oh, if this book is friendly to Kanban, I don't want to read it. If you're one of those people who just think that Kanban is is 
is your enemy because you're a scrum person or because you're a less person or because you're a safe person or because you're a whatever person, whatever it happens to be, then I think you need to catch up because most of your peers left that behind five or six years ago. (laughs) So what are we reading next? Uh, So next month, we are going to read Lean Software Development and Agile Toolkit by Mary and Tom Popenick. And I'm very, very, very excited to read that, especially that this book was published almost around 20 years ago. So I'm really looking forward to have a conversation with authors, how they actually reflect on everything that happened in this time in the software development and how some maybe of their assumptions or visions didn't come through or came true so i think that that would be very 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 interesting and i haven't read it yet i know that paul of course he did but uh, i think that that yeah but but you know the reason i'm excited about this is that i read it in 2004 i've got a paper copy in my library which i read for the first time in 2004 i have referenced it i mean i've got a got a few places where i pulled this out for for a presentation that i was doing about 10 years ago i have not opened the book in 10 years and i've only read it end to end once back in 2004 and and what i think is going to be really interesting to revisit it is this is the book that introduced the agile community to lean thinking and having dipped into it in 2004. But at the same time, when I dipped into this, I was also starting a company that was based on on Scrum. And so I was teaching a bunch of people Scrum and getting a bunch of Scrum, Scrum teams started. And so I was more focused on Scrum practices at the time than I was on lean thinking. And then later I ended up becoming that Kanban guy. And so what I'm really interested in is reflecting on how lean ideas evolved from the time that they were first introduced in 2003 to our community until the time that I finally started absorbing them 10 years later. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So yes, that will be time machine, I think for, uh, for, for all of us, maybe also for our listeners. So I am, I'm really looking forward to it. So for today, I think Paul, that we are just, done and that our listeners already have enough content to go for a long run or walk or clean the whole two-floor apartment or or a house. And for those of you who are still not sick and tired of us, there is our uh, after show. And I'm not sure what we are going to talk today about it. Well, you know, there there is more observations from the book that I can get into. I'd like to talk more about creating a learning environment because I I had to really... uh, be skimpy on that. There's, so there's there's all the uh, the 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 um, key takeaways that we decided not to get into during this podcast. And there's a few other things that I kind of want to talk to our community about. Like, um, yeah, I've got, like I, I've I've got a, a kind of conundrum about sending books to our subscribers that I wanted to to bounce off of you and maybe get some feedback from our community about. So we've got plenty of other things to talk about, and I'm curious about hearing about your new job. So all of that will be in the the even more laid back, even less structured, rather rather more friendly and poorly edited podcast, which we release after this one, only to our Patreon subscribers. If you're interested in that, just hop over there. 
we we originally thought about making it available to Patreon subscribers at like five dollars a month and above, but then it occurred to me, as I explained in the last podcast, there's like this chasm between people who support us and people who don't. There's there's like a huge leap between just consuming the content and just giving us a buck a month, and I think that leap needs to be recognized, valued, and rewarded. And there's no reason to keep this stuff from you folks. So all of our um, all of our additional content, which we publish as the after show is available to anybody who who buys us a cup of coffee a month, a cheap cup of coffee, a Dunkin' Donuts cup of coffee. Can you still get a cup of coffee for a buck at Dunkin' Donuts? We don't have them in Poland. Used to be a good cup of coffee, cheap. But I don't think I don't even think a McDonald's cup of coffee is a buck anymore. No. So for less than a McDonald's cup of coffee, you could get the the additional content we share only with the people who help to support the costs of producing this podcast. All for all the rest of you, um, join us again in two weeks when we will be talking to Jonathan Smart about, about this wonderful book that we've just finished. And uh, we'd love to hear your comments and feedback as well. There'll be a link to our Slack channel in the show notes. And so if you can join us on Slack and talk about the books with our community there and also tell us what you think about, about what we think, because... We welcome feedback. So thank you all. Yeah. And see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Goodbye.